Hello and welcome to episode five of Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. Today, we are delighted to have Matt Ford from Moro Capital on. So Hector, what are you excited about asking Matt about today? Probably too many things and we won't have time for all of them. But one thing in particular is I love talking to investors who've been entrepreneurs previously. And I, I think it gives them a unique perspective on investment targets and Weird episode one and mostly ex-operators. And so we have really strong conviction around that being a great approach to investing and an approach to building a fund. And I'm sure Matt's going to have some some really interesting thoughts around that. Yeah, absolutely. Matt founded Parity, which then got rolled into Tandem, and he ended up being chief product officer there. So it'd be interesting to see how that experience resonates with his time now as an investor at Moro Capital. So without further ado, uh, let's Bring in Matt. Welcome to Riding Unicorns, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a bit about your background today and how you got into VC? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, both of you. Yeah, I mean, there, there never is one traditional way into VC, so I don't know whether my journey is atypical or not, but I've been in VC about a year and a half. I joined Moro last January, and actually prior to that, I was on the operator side. So immediately beforehand, I was chief product officer at Tandem Bank. So I ran all the product and, and marketing teams there. It was a really interesting couple of years. So joined that business in 2018. We were just launching to market. So super exciting time to kind of be really growing that business. It was very different from what I'd done before. We were in the hundreds of people, which, which is uh, you know, a really big difference from kind of small stage startups that I'd done before that. And prior to Tandem, I actually founded a company called Parity back in 2014, which we were a really early mover in open banking. So this was pre-PSD2, pre-well, pre-open banking, really. We had a hypothesis about underwriting customers much more fairly based on bank transactional data rather than a traditional credit score. So we actually, we were the fourth ever credit bureau in the UK, which is something to be proud of. And we actually partnered with lenders to, to offer fairer, lower cost credit to customers. So, so yes, yeah, so I launched that business back in 2014, like really early days of fintech, I suppose, in the UK. Scaled it pretty well and we were VC backed and ended up selling that business to Tandem. So had some kind of interesting experiences on, on the entrepreneur side about like the pros and cons and stresses of raising money, uh, the full life cycle of a business of trying to create one thing, you know, think of everything from the branding through to the original pitch deck through to trying to get the exit. So moved into VC to try and bring some of that operator experience because yeah, when you, when you've got some of the scars, you see, you, see, you definitely can empathize, I think a little bit better with uh, with entrepreneurs, but yeah. And I suppose briefly before that, I, I, I got my first taste of startup scene at a company called Entries, which was, I don't know if you know mint.com, but it was very similar to mint.com, the UK's version that we also sold to money supermarkets. So I spent quite a bit of time on the entrepreneur side and, and yeah, now, uh, now on the VC side, hopefully bringing a lot of those learnings across. So how important do you think it is to have that kind of first-hand operator experience in your current role? Yeah, well, it's a really good question because I think a fund that's just purely operators misses something. And I think a fund that miss, that has just purely ex-investment banking or, or lifetime VC people is also missing something as well. So I think you need a mix of both. I'm not sure whether I'd fully appreciated that if I'm completely honest and, until I moved on to the VC side of, you know, like you, you definitely get a, a much better perspective having been an entrepreneur of, I suppose, the daily grind and challenges of things like hiring and culture and, you know, and fundraising from the other side of it. So I think, as I say, it brings quite a lot of empathy and 
And a lot of the entrepreneurs, when you do chat to them, they like the fact that you've been there. They like the fact that like, they kind of breathe a sigh of relief because that you know what it's, what it's like on their side of the table. But then if you've only ever been an operator, there's, there's almost like a pattern matching that you sometimes miss as well. Because I mean, thinking back, I, I was in Tandem, I was at Tandem, founded Parity and Entries. That's three startup experiences, all really within consumer fintech, where if you've spent 10, 15 years in VC, you've seen literally tens of thousands of businesses and you can start to almost pattern spot between particular business models that have worked or market entry strategies that have, that have worked or haven't worked. So I think having that blend within a fund is, is super important. And I'm kind of learning the pattern spotting bit as I go and bringing the entrepreneurial bit from the start. I was going to ask about that because so it seems like the skill set you get from being an entrepreneur or an operator is harder to learn as a VC compared to the pattern spotting skill set. So do you think operators can become VCs and pick up those skills or do you think you fundamentally um, have a different skill set if you come from investment banking or consulting or something like that? No, I think it depends on the personality. So I mean, the bit that I skipped at the beginning, I suppose, was I started my career in strategy consulting. So, you know, I, I wasn't a developer. I wasn't a product manager by trade, although I ended up in product. I was, I was a strategy consultant. And I think it's always a cum- accumulation, I suppose, of all your life experiences, your personal, like your professional experiences, because VC is a weird job. You know, it is pulling on all of those different components to judge whether it's a great team and you know how do you assess what a great team is whether it's a great market how do you assess a great market so i don't think an entrepreneur can't be a good investor and i don't think a good investor can't be a good entrepreneur i i really do think it's an individual's thing but but as i say i think as a fund you need you need a collection of all different perspectives and the last thing you want is just homogenous singular thinking you need you need people who think completely different ways as well just to just to challenge things but but yeah i mean i think it's interesting because there's increasing crossover. I mean, I know a number of VCs now that have gone and set up businesses and they make great entrepreneurs because you've seen the pitfalls, not personally as an entrepreneur, but uh, you've seen enough pitches and you've seen enough successes or fail- failures of businesses to, to skip some of that. And then I suppose on the other side, thinking back when I founded Parity, I was so naive. I mean, I was 20, what was it, 20 something, late 20s. And I think that naivety was an amazing quality to some extent, because you were just like jumping in with two feet. You'd no idea the 50 reasons why that business was definitely going to struggle in its first couple of years. And like, you probably wouldn't have started that business had you known all of that. Um, So I think, you know, it's a mixture of both of those things. So I don't think it's as black and white as one is harder than the other, but I, I, I really like those people that have spent a bit of time on both sides because it, it definitely brings a bit of uh, variety in the perspective. So. I agree the the blind faith part can be really valuable. Yeah. Um, so on the sort of stock picking side, do you think the operator experience improved your skill set on the like working out what a good product is, or do you think it's actually the empathy that you've got from having been a founder yourself um, that means you're better at spotting people, great founders, people who will stop at nothing to build a great business? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I'll be judged on that in seven years' time. When we're <laughs> yeah. <the> yeah. <laughs> like, I always, I always semi-joke with people that uh, the weirdest thing from moving from like a product world into a VC world is that a product feedback loop is a week or two weeks. Um, you know, you, you build a feature, ship a feature, get some feedback it's like a seven year journey. Yeah. So I could be a terrible VC. So, I mean, this is going to, this could age terribly. So who knows? Um, but, um, but I think empathy is important. I mean, there, there is 
often entrepreneurs investors have come from slightly different worlds and 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 being able to speak a similar language and being able to look at a product in a slightly different way and have technical technical conversations about how a platform's built um you know how they how they how they run their product team and culture and to be able to have kind of like a peer level conversation i th- i think has been incredibly helpful to to build trust with entrepreneurs as much as anything because <clears throat> you know there, there's this preconceived notion that you know the entrepreneur pick, you know pitches to all the vcs and then the vc says yes or no like at the end of the day it's it's almost the inverse relationship to some extent you know it's about us finding great teams that we really want to work with and then the entrepreneur picking the vc uh, to some extent you know it's a much more of kind of a mutual matching than 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 uh, those not in the industry would think and and i think having some of that peer relationships definitely helpful from that point because you know, if you're an entrepreneur you want people around you as advisors investors board members who you can get on with you know enjoy spending time with you you can kind of wrestle with and uh, you know, share thoughts on and, and kind of work through the difficult things together. So I think the entrepreneur skill set definitely helps on that front. Definitely. I think on the, um, does it make you a better stock picker? Time will tell. I I, I don't know. I, and I think to some extent from a product perspective, it's definitely, definitely advantageous. Um, you know, the first, it surprises some entrepreneurs when I speak to them that I already downloaded the app, I had to play with it. And, and I remember as an entrepreneur, the number of investors that just never even downloaded your app, uh, you know, were judging the business on a pitch deck. I, I always found that really surprising. So, so I think sometimes that really helps because I've found a few businesses where maybe the way they pitched the business wasn't spectacular, but you picked up the product and you think, wow, this is awesome. You know, like they've got something secret and different and better than other people. And then all of a sudden you, you've got an insight that perhaps a uh, a less product orientated investor would have, or, you know, they would discover that much later in the process as a diligence item rather than as a, as a criteria. Yeah. I think it's becoming more accepted to have VCs with no real investing experience as like, you know, partners in these funds. But I wonder if, had you done anything to kind of build a track record? Had you done any angel investing or like a fantasy portfolio, which is something that I'm doing at the moment. So that hopefully it, it's a little bit quicker to the point where I have some sort of a track record. Or was it straight in, straight into the deep end? No, I, I'd done bits and like tiny bits and pieces. I definitely wouldn't yeah. want to over, overhype it. But so I, I started my career in consulting, but then had, uh, so I mentioned On Trees, which was that first startup that I was involved in. On Trees was a, an interesting business because it was actually spun out of, um, uh, of, of a venture studio. So I joined DMGT, which is a, a big media group, um, and sat in the strategy team. So that was my first job out of, outside of consulting. And we built business. So we advised the group on strategy, but we also built businesses and on trees was one of those. And we also did the M&A uh, and startup investing when that happened out of that group as well. So had already taken like a tentative step into investing, not raising a fund, managing LPs, uh, you know, like not true. All the fun deep. stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was like the much easier stuff, which was, you know, ju- just the, the scouting side and doing the deal side. So had a huge amount of interest in that, but a, a bit of a bit of experience at that point. So that was that was prior to, to parity. And then I'd done bits and pieces. You know, I, I didn't have millions of pounds to be throwing around into angel investing at the time. But, you know, I put the odd thousand here or there into uh, businesses that friends had started or you know little bits and pieces through equity crowdfunding and more just to try and build a bit of knowledge and learning like and you know this was 10 well, not even 10 years ago but you know, during during the time I was running parity so always tried to stay close to the market always just tried to learn what a good investment was um, and I think that definitely uh, definitely helped but there's nothing like just being thrown into the bear pit and, and 
know, like that first two or three months of being an investor, having come from the other side, like I learned so much straight away. You know, it was, it was, it was very different to doing it quite lightweight over the previous, previous number of years. Yeah. And as a VCs, we all have criteria of what our funds can or can't invest into. Is there anything that's not part of your criteria that you always like to look for? And I'd love to hear if Hector's got anything that he looks for as well that isn't part of episode one's criteria. Oh, that's a really good question. It's a really good question. I mean, it, it completely depends on the stage of business. So I haven't really talked about Moro very much, but more uh, Moro Capital, we're a fintech specialist fund. Uh, but we're quite stage agnostic. So we've done everything from seeds, you know, some of the first money into the business all the way to really later stage stuff. And I think if you're a very stage specific fund, uh, particularly at the earliest stages, I think you can be a little bit more constrained around. These are the three, five, six things that we always look for, which is, you know, maybe second time founders, some funds double down on that or, you know, have come from particular backgrounds or have solved a problem before and they're now spinning it out and doing it themselves, like whatever it may be. But I think sometimes you can kind of template that a little, a little bit more where at Moro, I mean, we're, we're looking at businesses across all different stages. So it isn't like 50% of it is team and 40% of it is market size and, or anything like that. It's, it's a lot, it's a lot more organic and, and, it, and it depends on the stage, but I mean, being a, a layman, so being a product person, I mean, I naturally gravitate towards products that I love. And I don't always mean consumer products. I mean, we, we invested into DriveWealth last year, for instance. DriveWealth is a phenomenal business. It's a brokerage as a service business, which basically powers the stock trading features of Revolut, of free trade, of a bunch of uh, loads of businesses all around the world. It's an amazing product. It's not a consumer product. It's an amazing API driven product. So, you know, I, I personally get extremely excited when I see something that I could tell that a developer would love to jump on that. And, you know, the API docs are incredible. Or if it is a consumer prop that, uh, that just consumer feedback's been incredible. So I kind of, I definitely get drawn into the product side a lot earlier than, than many others. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's probably, you just got to look at everything though. I mean, the, the you know the classic things that everybody looks at is team market size all of those types of things i think a thing which i'd probably underappreciated into until moving into vc was almost come kind of like the capital raising profile of a business as well so it's very easy to say vcs just want very high margin SaaS like businesses because they're very capital efficient and become can become massive huge billion dollar businesses but in fintech it's so much more complex than that because it may involve regulatory capital. It may involve a bunch of other like debt funding structures and things like that. And I think one of the things that we can offer as a specialist fund is, is deeper knowledge around that type of side of the business, which is not, oh, you raise $10 million and you're fine. And, you know, you just raise equity that actually sometimes it involves a really complex financing structure to fund the loan portfolio that you're putting together or whatever it may be. So, so I think I, I also spend quite a bit of time thinking through businesses that aren't just going to burn through a load of expensive equity that can structure their loan portfolios in clever ways using forward flow or whatever it may be so i spend quite a bit of time thinking about that as well given given we do back a lot of lenders and and finance finance platforms so. yeah and i think at episode one we're investing in an earlier stage than the new guys but it's rare to find like the full package at pre-seed or seed where they've got everything sorted down to a t so it's usually like, you know, what we get excited about is a spike in certain areas. Like, is this person absolutely incredible? Is their product absolutely incredible? Are there, is there some anecdotal evidence from customers that like, 
certain groups of people absolutely love this um so yeah i mean we're, we're just we're just fishing for signals that like this could go crazy but yeah it's very rare to have the the full picture from kind of the seed stage i definitely agree with you you're finding something that they are just so much better than everybody else at and it could be could be anything across that suite, as you say. When you find a business that has just got something incredibly special, it's so obvious as well. It isn't just a playbook that's ticked all the boxes of particular, you know, pitch deck that makes sense. You can see that they've got something special that, that, that the rest of the company Yeah. And I think when, when you see those companies, it's obvious. And I think it's easy not to be honest with oneself as an investor. And perhaps if it's been a while since you've done an investment or something like that, you get a bit, you get excited at things that shouldn't necessarily be exciting enough to invest in that company but i think like when you're honest with yourself you really know when you see something that's super exciting and you just have to invest in and it prob- probably should only be those times where you actually invest as a vc yeah yeah i agree with that and so there's a chance to nerd out a little bit on fintech i mean we've seen lots of disruption or whatever you want to call it around sort of banking in particular but what are the next big trends within fintech and what are you guys particularly excited about right now yeah it's it's a good question so i mean we we're, we're quite thesis orientated as a fund so we do actually spend quite a lot of time researching uh not before we invest in a space because i think there's an inherent arrogance there to assume that you can predict what the future looks like but but we we definitely really try and pick apart you know what what those big trends are and i think two or three areas that really stand out so we're not the only ones talking about it, obviously, but embedded fintech, embedded finance is, is an absolute massive one. So, you know, if wave one of financial services disruption was banks are shit and slow and old and archaic and the technology, you know, they'll never be able to innovate. So let's go and build a brand new one. And if that was phase one and plenty of great, huge businesses have been built disrupting the incumbents that way. Phase two for me is kind of two pronged. One, um, actually kind of, uh, democratize the technology that's enabling that so we're seeing lots of banking as a service providers payments as a service i mentioned drive wealth already which is brokerage as a service so really taking the new or building new technology stacks that can enable anybody else to start to build on top of them rather than having to build fully vertically integrated challenges so that's kind of big macro trend number one uh, and then the second of that second one of those is using those types of infrastructure then embedding that into non-financial brands so increasingly starting to see uh, non-financial services businesses start to have financial services in their roadmap. Um, So we're looking increasingly at things like logistics and mobility and sustainability and a lot of things that don't necessarily seem like fintech, but actually, you know, they might be starting out with a particular product that has nothing to do with financial services at all, but over time they'll start to monetize from payments, from lending and, and using a lot of these um, infrastructure as a service platforms. So, so I think that's a, that's a really, really huge one. Um, and it is nascent. I mean, it's very hyped at the moment, uh, but it is still very nascent. You know, it's a big five, 10 year journey because even, you know, even though Shopify and, you know, there's the, there's the classic ones that everybody points to, there's still like the same five to 10 big, examples that everybody points to it's not that every single company in the world is monetizing from financial services revenue yet but i think the investor scene has has woken up to that opportunity and i think there's some really great and interesting businesses being built there at the moment just to dig into that one so one company that springs to mind that i found really interesting they build an api first loan tool for marketplace platforms 
Mm. Um, so if you're Etsy or one of the many other similar companies, you basically allow your merchant sellers to plug in their data and then you would have built it as Etsy. You would have built in the loan product using their API to your platform, make it really easy for these merchants to, to get loans to fund growth. Are there any other like specific companies that you think, uh, or that's one that I like, um, what, what are you in particular sort of interested in that embedded um, finance space? There's some cool use cases that you've seen. Yeah, the, I mean, the debt as a service space is a really, really interesting one. I, I think you're completely right that the capabilities around credit are so complex and you need so much track record of credit cycles and all of that type of stuff. Etsy, use the example of Etsy, it's a perfect example. They don't have that capability in-house today and to go and build that capability would be huge. So using a debt as a service platform makes complete sense. And we've looked at that space a lot, actually. Um, I'm very, very bullish on it's finding the right provider of that because the profile credit risk on Etsy versus something else is completely different. So I think we are quite early in finding out what that winning infrastructure platform will look like, but very, very bullish on that space. Um, from embedded payments, I mean, the, there's there's a ton of interesting businesses out there. I mean, we've we've backed TrueLayer, so TrueLayer in our portfolio, who are doing a lot of kind of open banking payments, but essentially enabling people to buy, uh, bypass card rails and start to embed open banking rails into their apps. So, you know, that's an, that's another incredibly interesting example. But we're also seeing it on the insurance side as well. I mean, insurance is a really interesting category because. You know, the, if you think about it, the idea of going and buying a product and then financing the product and then insuring the product, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, we were talking just before we were recording this about, about bikes and the bike that actually both, both me and we've got, like they're kind of doing a quasi insurance product without offering insurance anyway. So you're not going and buying an insurance product in case I lose my bike. You can pay the company an extra I think it's like 200 pounds or whatever it is. And if you lose your bike, they'll go and get it. So there's lots of these really interesting ways in which you can blend financial products and services. And insurance is, is one that we're definitely definitely looking at. There's huge opportunities there. Yeah, there's a company in Belgium called Cover, spelled with a Q, that is doing that, I think, for Revolut and Deliveroo. So the Revolut example is using open banking data. So you buy some pet food and it says, do you want pet insurance? And, uh, and then for Deliveroo, they're they're offering buy the mile insurance within the riders apps and yeah a lot of these big platforms aren't going to go out and build their own underwriting apis and things like that so if you can be the api of insurance into different services and either be specialist or generalist there is just like huge opportunity i think that's uh, that's one thing i'm excited about is like the uk is dominant in fintech so like who's now in the UK who's selling to those fintechs because they've got an unfair geographical advantage in accessing those big businesses at a senior level. So yeah, I definitely agree with that. Now wanting to make this just me talking to you, James. <laughs> the, I think that that insurance um, piece is really interesting because so it feels like a kind of step one is the embedded insurance. Like, you know, maybe it's allowing the bike manufacturers like if they're selling direct to consumer, maybe you can pin on a insurance policy like when you buy the bike. What I'm kind of interested to see, and I don't know whether Matt, you've seen anyone doing this, is like people actually rebuilding the insurance model. So I haven't gone for the insurance for, for my bike because I just don't really like insurance because I know that I'm paying a, mm -hmm. basically a margin to, to people sitting in an office. Um, what I love the idea of is peer-to-peer -peer insurance and like, 
So Lacquer is a company that I backed on um, CrowdKeep, I think it was, or Cedars. But there's a bunch of companies now doing peer-to-peer insurance where you invite your friends who you think are careful to your insurance group so that hopefully you can save money on your insurance policies, basically. Have you seen anyone doing that in a really cool way? Or what, what do you think might happen in that kind of insurance space, but down a couple of layers? Yeah, no, it's peer-to-peer insurance is incredibly interesting. So I I actually use Lacquer as well. Again, a very interesting model for if people aren't aware of the way it works rather than paying paying your premium up front. And then if a loss happens, then then the the insurance company uh, pays out. Instead, basically each month you get a bill uh, for total losses for the group that you're part of, and then you collectively pay up for, for what the losses are. So it really inverts the model. And it's worked in some sectors and it hasn't worked in others. I mean, I remember there was one in, I can't remember the name of it now, but quite a few years ago in motor insurance that just didn't work. It, it failed from a peer-to-peer perspective. And interestingly, pet insurance, so bought by many, um, you know, they, they, I believe, started from the a peer-to-peer perspective and, and kind of then shifted over time. So I think it, it, it depends on the model and it depends on whether you can get enough within your risk pool because you know, the problem with a lot of these is if, now, the beauty of a big insurance company is they're taking the years of experience of building out underwriting, then they're taking the risk and will pay out. But, um, you know, if you're if you've got 100 people in your insurance pool, it only takes one or two for a massive wipeout. And all of a sudden the spikes can be can be huge. So you need a massive pool of people before actually you can kind of uh, get rid of some of that volatility and some of that risk that the whole pool has. But, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I'm most excited about not just insurance, but financial services generally, which is like, how do you take a financial product and not just recreate a digital version of it, but go all the way back to what is like the job that it's trying to solve? And can you completely rethink the way that that's done? And, you know, insurance, I use the bank example. I think it's a perfect example because what we want is not to pay for cover on something, on like an insurance cover for something. We want our bike to get fixed or our car to get fixed, or we want things to be replaced if they get lost. Those are the jobs that we want solved as a, as a consumer. And, and, you know, and that's ultimately what a financial product solving. But if you think about it that way, you can solve those problems in, in many other different ways. And it's the same with credit cards. I spent a couple of years at Tandem. Tandem had a couple of credit cards in the market at the time. And everybody's now talking about, oh, the credit card's dead. It's all about buy now, pay later. Klarna's taking over the world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I think that's often because people are thinking about the credit card as a financial product. You know, it's like, it's a piece of plastic that gives me rewards and it gives, you know, it it allows me to uh, not pay back in full each month if I can't afford it and to smooth out some of my spending. But actually, if you kind of, go all the way back to what a credit card is really trying to solve. Like it's not trying to solve cash back. You know, that's like a weird thing that's kind of come out of the market over time. Like it's trying to solve really simple things like um, I get paid next week. So I want, I need this today, but I get paid next week. And a credit card might be a way of solving it, but so might be a salary advance so that you can pull down some of your salary a little bit early. So it's thing like companies like WageStream enable you to do that. I mean, it might be like one of the problems I think Klarna solves incredibly well is um, I buy five things from ASOS because I don't know what size fits me or whether I like it. And I want to be able to send it back without my credit card being hit with 300 pounds and then me waiting for refunds and I can't spend in the meantime buy now pay later solves that problem perfectly because actually you only pay for what you keep so i think actually you know financial services full stop you got to ball back to like what are those core problems that they're trying to solve and tons of really interesting exciting businesses rethinking the way that that's done 
Matt, I think you're a good person for me to ask this question, a burning question that I've, I sort of wonder about. And uh, so I use Monzo and Revolut. And I feel like Revolut just innovate much faster. And I feel like they experiment, they release new products faster. And what I wondered is from your time at Tandem and from what you've seen in the fintech space and now as an investor, how can you create an organization that does iterate fast, that does release products really quickly, that does innovate super quickly, stay relevant and meet consumers' needs in different areas? And, and is that something that you guys look at at Mora? Is that something that you're kind of looking out for? Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a complex answer because I think there's, I think they're completely different businesses. And I think there's many, many reasons why they've innovated, but equally done very, very well in different ways as well. I mean, running a bank is hard. (laughs) So I think what Monzo did and have done is just phenomenal in overcoming what is an incredibly difficult, expensive, slow, very constrained sector, which is banking. I mean, for Tom, a young 30 year old at the time or whatever he was, to go and become CEO of a bank and get through like the full prudential regulation of it. That is phenomenally hard. And it, I really wouldn't under, underestimate the constraint seems a negative word, but I mean, constraint is a good thing to some extent when you're dealing with systemic risk, which is banks. You know, if you're taking depositors' money and you're lending that money out, like banks play really fundamental systemic role. So, you know, the, the regulator has to really be a lot more cautious than the many other sectors were given, given the role that banks play in the economy. So what Monzo did, they, they picked up the hardest bit to some extent, and, and so did Tandem and so did Starling of, you know, going and getting that full banking license and then being able to deliver something that was so much better, so much different, so much faster, so much, you know, like completely different from what the existing incumbents were doing. So I think, Monzo has that those challenges, which it has all of these constraints, but it had an amazing DNA, which was just this, like, listen to every single thing that the customer wanted and then pick bit by bit by bit the biggest pain points and just make a bank a hundred times better. And I think that's exactly what they've done. They've made a bank a hundred times better. And I was trying to communicate. We were having dinner with some friends at the weekend who didn't use Monzo, hadn't even heard of Monzo. I was trying to explain like why you should get Monzo. And it, it was a weird thing to explain because it's like, it's like a bank, but it's a lot better. And they're like, but my bank's kind of okay. And you're like, yeah, yeah. But have you ever lost a card? Because it takes like a week until you get it back. And they're like, yeah, actually, yeah, that is a bit annoying. But they've basically just done every single thing that a bank has done and incrementally done it a lot better. The, the bits that they've really struggled on is clearly the credit side because, you know, they, although they've managed the, the bank license phenomenally well, you know, that they, they didn't come from a credit first background. They didn't think about lending as the starting point. And I think they've now got that big challenge, which is how do you um, keep building all those features that customers want, but then ultimately monetize in the same way that a bank monetizes, which is through lending. Um, so I think they've got, they've got that big open question to solve. Revolut, Revolut is just a completely different business. I mean, Revolut looks in many ways a bit like Monzo, but they just came, they, they came from the travel sector initially. You know, it was um, when I travel abroad, I get completely ripped off on, F, on FX. Let's, let's build a better one of those. So as a result, the business was set up in a very different way. You know, this, there was no systemic risk to any of that. And then as they saw some customer demand, they could very quickly throw out a test and they could learn whether that was right. And then they could add it on. And over time, they've built, a phenomenal number of features. And 
I mean, it staggers me how many different things that Revolut offers. And I'd love to see the customer segmentation because they've probably got about 15 different customer segments of crypto trading through to FX, you name it. But they've just come from a very different angle. And I know they're ending up at very similar points. But, you know, I think for Monzo to succeed, it will need to get into lending. I think it will have to be better at being a bank than others. But Revolut, Revolut's like a Amazon Prime for uh, for like the periphery of, of banking. I, I don't think Revolut is disrupting banking. I think it's 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 solving the periphery, doing it phenomenally well and making a lot of money. But um, but yeah, I mean, long answer to a short question. But it, th- there's many reasons. There's regulatory overhead. There's just approach. You know, you, you can't just throw something at the wall and see whether it sticks if you're fully regulated as a bank. But being a bank gives you a huge amount of opportunities and I know Revolut are moving towards getting towards a, being a bank fully you know internationally I know they've already got a bank license in Europe but they're getting there over time but they've just come from completely different places yeah I think that's that's really interesting to hear I think that the question came from a place of just slight disappointment that like as an early Monzo user I just kind of and an early adopter of all things tech I just want to see new products the whole time I'm intrigued. Like, what what do you want to see then? Do you use all the crypto features of, of Revolut? So, so I think their roadmap I've looked at perhaps, and I've thought that some of the stuff looks really cool. And yeah, maybe it is just having, I would rather have one app, which kind of does it all, rather than having to have, you know, accounts with free trade, accounts with Revolut, with Monzo, with like whoever else to get the job done. And it feels like Revolut is closer to that, but still, you know, they haven't nailed crypto as in I still have to have a Coinbase Pro account to get lower fees and to get access to the right cryptos. I still have to have a free trade account or a trade in 212 account to get access to the right shares. So so it doesn't quite feel like anyone's nailed that kind of super app yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I, I definitely agree. I mean, Revolut are obviously going for the super super app side. I mean, personally, I use, I, I like dabble with the crypto piece through Revolut, although also use many of the other crypto trading apps as well. So, you know, they haven't got my full share of wallet there. I, I do use them for stock trading. Uh, I mean, we we invest in DriveWell through Power, Revolut, stock trading, and, you know, they are one of the better ones for getting access to US equities through through Revolut. So I do use it for that. But I do my core banking through, through Monzo. And I know what you mean. I know what you mean that they did so much. And then they they don't they don't have say the, the full breadth of it. But what they've done, they've done phenomenally well. But yeah. it completely depends what you need, I suppose. Definitely. I it sounds like I'm slating Monzo. I use Monzo <laughs> as my current account as well. They're my core bank. So yeah, I just want to put that out there. <laughs> well, there's so much more we could talk about at that, but I think um we're we're running out of time. We've got a quick fire game to play at the end, which is we love to find out if there were sort of three people that you go for a business lunch with who would they be so it's a good question so business lunch so i think one of the collison brothers i would say and i i'm kind of torn between which one but i'm going to say patrick because i think you know being within fintech last 10 years of all the businesses that have been, been built i think stripe is by far the most incredible success story really of you know them essentially just enabling uh, enabling a whole economy in some ways. Uh, you know, it was so difficult to accept payments, but it wasn't just about payments. This was about anybody being able to buy online and sell online easily. And I think what Stripe did was phenomenal. So, and he was, how old was he? He was like, he's younger than me. I mean, he was like early twenties when him and John set it up. So, I mean, I would definitely have him around the table because he's an absolute hero. 
Um, and he's, he's one of these people, if you follow him on Twitter, he's extremely well-read. Like, I'm sure he would spark a ton of interesting debate, probably not about fintech, but about, you know, anything else that he's been reading. So I definitely have Patrick. So yeah, my second one would be Sheryl Sandberg. Um, again, again, just thinking about companies that have had a phenomenal impact on the world. Facebook has, has undoubtedly been one of them. And it'd be really easy to say, oh, Mark Zuckerberg, but Sheryl Sandberg's been there in the shadows to some extent, but the heart of that organization, driving that organization, She's also done like a phenomenal amount of amazing things as well, kind of outside of Facebook. So I think she'd be a really interesting person as well. Know both of those kind of Silicon Valley. So that's probably not ideal. But my third one isn't actually alive. So I don't know whether that breaks the rules or not. But like an absolute hero of mine was has, has always been Alan Turing. So I was kind of thinking back of what historical figures and, and it's not that historical, but what historical figures would you want to sit around the table with and get their perspective on the modern world and now, he was kind of the father of computing to some extent. And given everything that we've you know, experienced the last 20, 30 years, I mean, I would love to have him around the table to understand, you know, did he see the world going this way? You know, what, what, would, what would he think about, well, I mean, the internet and, you know, and, and everything that's, that's come off the back of that. So, yeah, those would be my three. So I don't know what that trio would be like, whether it would be a fun party or not, but, but let's see. That's great. You get three points there for three unique guests that we haven't had. Oh, really? So far. Oh, that's awesome. That's <laughs> nah, going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, well, Matt, thank you so much. As I said, you know, I'm sure we could talk a lot more in depth about lots of different things, but um, it's been great to hear, you know, your background and what you guys are doing in, in the fintech space and some of the trends that you're seeing. It's really, really interesting. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, yeah, good luck with everything. No, thanks you. for having me. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Fascinating stuff there from Matt Moro, one of the top fintech investors in the UK. So they've got a good feel for what's going on in the market. And it's always great to hear from someone that's been on the operator side as well. This week's startup spotlight is Housebots. Housebots' mission is to use technology to protect and maintain the built environment their main product is a wall climbing robot that uses suction to stick to any surface. It's quite a fascinating company and they're doing really well securing corporate and government contracts. It is hardware, but they've got a really strong team that have got lots of robotics experience and they're currently fundraising. So any hardware investors out there do get in touch. Thanks again for listening to Riding Unicorns. Catch us next week when we've got Jean Name, former founder of Touch Surgery, which was acquired for many millions. So look out for that one. See you next time.